Uh, everyone can please be seated. And I would like to invite our children to head down to their, uh, down to Transformation Station downstairs. And, um, and if you have your Bible with you, today we're going to be in John chapter 4, starting at verse 43. And if you have one of the Bibles that we provide in the back, that's going to be found on page 889. So once again, that is John chapter 4, verse 43. And let me take a moment to turn to it myself. So I have a, I have a question for you. Have you ever thought what it means to honor God? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. That's a pretty loaded question. In fact, though, it's, it's extremely essential. What Paul says in, in his letter to the Romans is that he, he's making this claim that it is the lack of honoring God rightly that has led us to the, to the world of kind of chaos and destruction and despair and even the, the conflicts and the pains that we feel in our own souls. So that, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, if dishonoring God is what has led us to the world's current issues and the own issues and struggles that we have with sin in our own lives, then the question of what does it take to honor God rightly is a pretty important and vital question. Now, I don't think that this question and this claim about honoring God is unique to Christianity. In fact, I would say that every single religious and philosophical system that has ever been created has attempted to answer this question. They've all proposed that at some level we have been disconnected with God or in many religious systems, the gods. And what the system is trying to do is to bring back a reconnection between us and, and him or them. So before we discuss what, what the Bible might say about honoring God, I thought we would take a quick survey of a couple different religious systems and see what they had to say. So let's look for a moment at the religion with the world's second greatest uh, religious population, which is Islam. Now, uh, I'm going to be admittingly simplifying things quite a bit here, uh, but, but what I hope to do is to just give an, an honest and accurate representation of Islam's fundamental beliefs on how we honor God. So, from what I can tell, Islam is essentially a religion of laws. So Muslims believe that, that Allah or, or, or God had given to the Prophet Muhammad a, a divine rule. And that if people would follow this rule and follow this plan and this pattern, that they would find their ways back to God. And at, this, at the core of this rule, I, I want to read these rightly here, there are five pillars. The first is a testimony of faith, saying that God is one and one alone, and that his prophet is Muhammad. So that's the testimony of faith. The second is prayer five times a day facing the, the city of Mecca. The third is called zakat, or supporting the needy through charitable giving. The fourth is fasting from food, drink, and, and even sexual relations from dusk until dawn during the feast of Ramadan. And the fifth is making a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca. So, I, you know, I, once again, there's 
different interpretations as to what the Quran says within the Islamic faith. So, uh, you know, I, I, I am simplifying things a bit here, and I'm sure there's n- more nuance. But I think that every single person who's an adherent to Islam would agree that these five principles are right at the core of what it takes to reconnect with God. So we can see that Islam is a system of laws. It's a system of steps and progress. So if you do this, if you do that, if you pray, if you, if you take this pilgrimage, if you fast, then you live a life like that. You eventually attain yourself back to a reconnection with God. Uh, in Jesus' day, there were many different religions, uh, and they all sort of practiced this system of sacrificial worship. And in fact, we still see that today, especially in places such as India, which is a place that both uh, Pastor and Tanner and I got to go to just a couple of years ago. And in those religious systems, what you do is you bring an offering to the God. So whether it's food or drink or some kind of clothing, and, and you bring this offering to the God, you put it on their altar, and then, and then because you gave that offering, you beseech that God to now reward you with something that you want. Whether that's money or success in a job or maybe healing for something. Uh, And a big one over there is fertility. So they'll bring an offering and and ask the gods for fertility. So I want to keep those two kinds of system in mind. The first one is is walking this moral life, following rules and laws. And the second one is, is, is us offering sacrifices to a god so that they can respond to us with a gift the gift of reconnecting with them, the gift of their presence. So with those in mind, I want to turn our attention now to the Gospel of John. And here I'm not going to give a full discussion on how God is honored in the Christian faith. I mean, to do that would take quite a few hours. It would take days, weeks, probably months, years, a lifetime. But what I would like for us to do is to look at, like I did with these two religions, I'd like for us to look at the foundational level of what it takes to become reconnected with God. So a few months ago, Pastor John brought our attention to to, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And this is what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that John wrote about, he said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is another word for Messiah or Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I want us to realize something. What John is saying is that the miracles and the signs that Jesus performed were done for a very purposeful intention. They were demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life that brings us back to God. That's it. There's no sacrifices that can be made. There's no moralistic living that can be done. It is only in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have life in his name. That's what it means to believe in him and have life in his name. It's a picture of our lives or anyone's lives becoming intertwined and interconnected with Jesus. All right, the only word I can think of to to kind of picture this is relationship. So what Jesus loves, we love. What Jesus finds to be repulsive, we would find to be repulsive. What Jesus finds to be moral, we find to be moral. What Jesus does, we do. And ultimately, what Jesus commands, we follow. 
That's what it means to have a life intertwined with Christ there and to have a relationship with him. So what are the signs for? Well, the signs are are powerful and miraculous acts that show the people Jesus' true identity so that their hearts can become inflamed with passionate love that longs to be intertwined in a relationship with Christ. And I think that this is at the very core of what it means to honor God rightly in the Christian faith. Because we know that from John chapter 1 that Jesus is the eternal Son of God made flesh so that he could reveal who God is to us and then bring us to God. That's what we find throughout the whole Gospel of John. But what we're about to discover as we jump into the text today is that even in Jesus' day, there were many, many people who saw these miracles and these signs and these wonders and the authority and the power that Jesus had. But they still didn't see who he was. So they could see all of these signs. They could see all of these miracles. But they just, they couldn't see him as the way to God. As the truth that brings them to God. As the one who they need to be connected with. What they do in effect is they come to honor the miracles. And they come to love the power that Jesus has. But they don't love the person. So as we open our text, we're going to see a couple of these things play out, but I also want to offer us great hope because there is a couple of instances that we see both in this text and in some other places right around it where people do honor Christ rightly. And what I want us to fundamentally see, this is my hope, and this is the point of this sermon, is that when we honor, oh, excuse me, that in order to honor God rightly, We need to first honor Jesus truly. So let's open up our text and read in John chapter 4, verses 34 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you send your spirit down so that we can see the truths in this gospel, we can know the truths of this gospel, and we can love the truths of this gospel. And that is mainly, Lord, that we can love and know, believe in, have faith in, and follow Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.
So one of the most important details that, that you can read when you're, when you're going through the Gospels are, are these geographical identifiers. Now, it's very simple. In, in verse 43, for instance, we read, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, that's, that's a really simple, short statement, but it carries a lot of power in it because it's basically taking the reader's attention from the area that was precedingly spoken of and is now moving us to, to the current events that John's going to bring to our minds. And so I want us to remember that on his way from Jerusalem, from Judea, excuse me, to Galilee, Jesus passed through Samaria. And what happened while he was in Samaria, if we were to go back and read it, is that, is that Jesus and his disciples had this ministry to the Samaritan people. Now, Samaritans weren't Jewish. They didn't have the Old Testament like these Galileans did. But in the ministry to them, especially to the woman at the well, and then it said to many villagers who were in the area, Jesus just spoke words about his own authority and his own power. And, they, and it was said that the Samaritans came to believe that he was the savior of the world. So that's where we're leaving, okay? I just want to bring that to our mind. We're leaving a place where Jesus had a really darn successful ministry. Okay? It was a two-day period of power is what he had. Now, I don't know about you, but if it were me, I might want to just stay put there. You know, I might have just looked at my disciples and said to them, you know, guys, Samaria's a really nice place. They've got a well going on here. I think we could turn that place into a church. I mean, why don't we just settle down here for a few years? Then, then maybe we can reach out to Galilee, but, but Jesus isn't me. Good thing about that. And, uh, and he kept to his word and to his plan. And he said, I'm staying here in Samaria for two days, and I'm moving on to Galilee. Now, this is really something that's kind of shocking, because I want us to read in verse 44 now. It shows us something pretty incredible about Jesus keeping this plan. It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So John is telling us that Jesus left a place where he was honored, respected, and, and, and loved as the savior of the world to go to a place where he knows he won't be honored in the same way. Just think about that for a moment. He knows he's not going to be honored, and that's why he goes there. That is powerful. Jesus doesn't wait to be honored. If he just waited to be honored, if he just desiring to be honored by everyone he went to and spoke truth to, then he never would have gone into Galilee. He would have said, these hearts are dull. I'm not going there. I'm staying in Samaria. But that's who, that's who this God incarnate is. That's a, that's a pretty powerful statement about his character. If we were to actually go back to the Gospel of Luke, we can see what happens when he returns to Nazareth, which is in Galilee. It's the hometown he grew up in. And they, <laughs> the people in Nazareth actually attempted to kill him and to throw him off a cliff because he proclaimed to be the Messiah. The very same thing that the Samaritans, <clears throat> excuse me, the Samaritans were honoring him for. Is this, it, the same thing they were honoring him for is the exact same thing that the people in Galilee and the people in Nazareth in, in, in particular were willing to kill him for. <laughs> That's where he went. He's going to go where he needs to spread the word. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if he's going to find rejection, even to the point of his life being threatened. Now, I want us to look one verse ahead. And this is where we really get into the heart of this sermon and what it means to honor God. If we look in verse 45, you might think, 
Scott, you've just been lying to us for the last couple minutes. I mean, look at it. It says right here. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him? What does that mean? We're in kind of a conundrum now, aren't we? I mean, didn't it just say that a prophet has no honor in his hometown and now they're welcoming him? Wait, I, I'm, I'm confused, right? Well, as it is with most of Scripture, I think if we continue reading, we'll get a fuller picture of, of what this honoring or this welcoming him means. We, if we read the whole verse, it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. John is drawing our attention back to something he wrote in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. I'll read that for you. Now, when he, being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. What does this statement tell us about the Galilean Jews present both in chapter 2 and now here in chapter 4, to the people that Jesus is going to now, where he's going to continue his ministry that was so successful in Samaria. I think that it's, it's telling us that the men and women from Galilee who had seen certain signs, miracles, and wonders worked by Jesus are completely missing the point. You see, they don't believe in Jesus as the only one who can bring them to God. They don't believe in Jesus as the Savior, as the Samaritans did. They believe in him as some sort of amazing magician, a miracle worker, a worker of wonders. So they're following him or they're welcoming him because of his miraculous prowess. What kind of show can Jesus put on for us today? What kind, of, what kind of miracles can he work for us in our presence? That's the reason they're welcoming him. Not like the Samaritans did. Not like the Samaritans did as, as their savior. So in other words, what we're seeing here is that there is a kind of faith and belief that can look right and look good, but it's really counterfeit. It's not real. It has no heart. It has no, no nut. It's just a husk on the outside that's looking for the miraculous works of Christ and what he's going to do for us. If we, if we continue reading for a few more verses, we're basically going to see Jesus say this in his own words. Verses 46 through 49 say, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, before we get into this, the, 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 um, the core of this kind of section right here when we're talking about the official, I want us to try to tie a ribbon on what I was just mentioning about the people in Galilee. One thing that's not noticeable in our English translations today is that in verse 48, we might think that Jesus was specifically talking to the official, but the truth is, in the original text and in the language that Jesus was speaking, which was Aramaic, he actually used a plural you there. So in other words, he looked directly 
at the official, but then said, y'all. All right? Do we have any Southerners still left, or are they all, they all gone for Christmas? Was that, a, was that a good enough y'all? Still no response? Okay, I'm going to just take it that that was a perfect, pristine y'all right there. That's, that's just what I'm going to say. And uh, if any of our Southern members are listening online, they can either make fun of me or tell me that I'm awesome with that. <laughs> so, anyways, what I, what I think Jesus is ultimately doing here is primarily rebuking the crowd. Now, I think that he's giving a rebuke to the official, but I'm going to tell you why in a moment, why I think this primary rebuke was done to the crowd. Because here's the deal. These people around him, okay, we know that they saw him in Jerusalem. That's what John tells us. We know that they saw signs and miracles and wonders. And not only that, but Jesus is in the very town where he performed his first miracle, which was turning water into wine. Now, we have no indication that the official had seen any of that or the official had known any of that. The only thing we know is that the people in Galilee themselves had seen Jesus work in these wonders and miracles before. So once again, and I want to hammer this point home, they've just become absolutely enamored with what seeing what Jesus will do. But then the moment he opens his mouth to speak the truths of God, They want nothing to do with him. We can see that if we were to fast forward a couple chapters in John chapter 6, and you should all come back when when whoever's preaching on that, because I'm sure it's going to be a powerful sermon. But I'll just jump ahead for a moment. In John chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people, okay, with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, we all, I, I think most people know of that miracle. That's a pretty darn amazing miracle. But you know what happens? The next day, The people are pursuing Jesus. They're coming after him. And Jesus turns around and looks right at them. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Oh, and by the way, this is still in the Galilean region just a couple chapters later. We don't know how much time has passed, but it's still with the Galilean people. So this is the same group of people, maybe a year later, the same group of people, and they're completely missing the point of the miracle and sign. They miss it to the point where Jesus says, you saw the sign, but you didn't see the sign. Because the sign points to me. He ends up telling them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that entire crowd responds by grumbling about him because he said this. So I I just hope that I've hammered this point home. There is a way of seeing Jesus for who he is. Well, excuse me, not seeing him for who he is, but see Jesus for the, for the miracle worker he is, for seeing Jesus for having the power that he has. Seeing the signs, the miracles, the wonders, and completely and totally rejecting him for who he is by his nature, which is the savior of the world, the bread of life. All of those miracles and all of those signs are supposed to point to that reality, but all they're doing is they're, they're loitering around the signs and they're asking for more and they're asking for more what can you do for me jesus what can you do for us what can you show us today 
So people are more concerned with what they can get from Jesus than actually being with him, delighting in him, and hearing what he has to say as their Lord and Savior. So remember our first point, though. Jesus intentionally goes into these very places where others, he knows these others will reject him. And I want us to come to a second point here based on what we've just read, and that is that Jesus is dishonored when people only seek his miraculous powers. And so if, if we can honor God rightly when we honor Jesus truly, only seeking after the miracles and the wonders and the powers that Jesus performs, if they're dishonoring to Jesus, then seeking after those cannot honor God. You get that? That's, that's one of the hard lessons of this, of this chapter here. Now, though, I would like to turn our attention to something else that's not as bad. <laughs> there's, there's a little more... There's, there's a, there's, I, I think there's a happy ending. And that's why I saved it for the end. So I'd like us to turn our attention to the last portion of our narrative. And this is the ordeal with the official and his dying son. Now I'm going to be honest with you. The exchange between the two of them uh, isn't exactly the easiest conversation to follow. But there is one thing I believe that we can see. And that is that the official... It's a bit different than the crowd. Now, like I've already mentioned, there's no indication that this official, who's, who's a Jewish official, by the way, there's no indication that he had seen any of the miracles and the wonders that Jesus had done, but most assuredly he had heard of them because it's the fact that he heard of them that prompted him to go and seek after Jesus, right? So one of the first distinguishing, well, that's one, that is the first distinguishing feature. The second distinguishing feature is that he was motivated by a desire not to just see signs and wonders and miracles for themselves, but because he was concerned for his dying son. He had a concern for his dying son. That's why he was coming to Jesus. And I think it's a genuine concern. Um, so uh, the next one is the... Uh, the next distinction feature is that the man, he does have enough hope that Jesus actually can heal his son. And so that's what prompts him to travel from Capernaum to Galilee or to Cana, which is about a 25-mile journey back in the day where they didn't have teas and cars. And, and uh, so that was a bit of a journey at that point. So I think this is telling us that this man, he's a little bit of a different motivation. He's not just seeking for signs and wonders. He has a bit of a different faith perspective because he's, he's traveling. So Jesus came into Galilee, right? The Galileans didn't seek him out. But this man from Capernaum actually sought Jesus out. So I think that's showing us something a little bit different about his faith as well. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, there's a weakness to his faith. And this draws itself out when we compare this Jewish official with the Roman centurion from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. Let me read that passage and then make a comparison between the centurion and the official. So in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 10, it says, When he, being Jesus, entered Capernaum, which is the same place the official is from, a centurion, who was Roman, not Jewish, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word 
and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. It's just the only time it says that Jesus marveled. Jesus marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. (laughs) I draw this comparison because they're very similar scenarios. I mean, both in the same location, both of someone who's dying, well, paralyzed and dying, someone that they genuinely care for. But this centurion demonstrates a power of faith that Jesus marvels at. Marvels at it. And what is it that Jesus truly marvels at? It's because Jesus says, yes, I will come and make, and I will do this healing. And the centurion responds and says, Lord, I know. I know who you, well, I know who you are. I might not know exactly who you are, but I know that you have divine power. I know that you are someone who is magnificent and beyond just the regularities of this world. All you have to do is speak. Just say a word. (laughs) That's the faith that the centurion had. He didn't care about proximity. He just cared about Jesus because he knew that Jesus had the power and the authority over all illnesses, all paralysis, and, and maybe even over death. I don't know. I'm kind of speculating on that one, to be honest with you. But I like this centurion. So, <laughs> so I'm going to speculate in the positive for him. That's pretty powerful. Now let's read of the opposite. Let's read of the, the official. In verse 49, after Jesus rebukes the crowd, in verse 49, the official cries out, Sir, come down before my child dies. Do we see the difference there? See it? The Roman centurion says, just speak it. The Jewish official had some faith, but he said, Lord, come with me. Come this 25-mile walk with me. Come down to Capernaum. It really appears as though this Roman centurion, once again, I want to emphasize Roman. He was not Jewish. He did not have the Old Testament. He did not grow up up studying about the Messiah. But he had a faith in Christ because he could just perceive who he was with his authority and his power. And the official had a sense, a little sense. But this is, this is why I love Jesus, though. One of the reasons why I love Jesus. Because he still heals the son. He still heals him. Now I want us to, to keep reading and, uh, and see something that I think is transformative here about the official. So when Jesus says to the Roman official, go, your son will be healed. The official kind of had a choice there. He could either say, and he could either stand there and insist, no, you come with me, Jesus, or he could be obedient and go with faith. And the great thing is he chose the second. (laughs) He had the faith. He had the faith to just go. And we even say here, we read, he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now that's a pretty remarkable statement in and of itself. And I think we're seeing a spiritual growth right in that moment of this official. 
In fact, I think this entire passage is talking about a spiritual growth of this official in his faith. Because remember, Jesus says to all of them, including him, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But now the official is going with the belief that he hasn't first seen. I think that's the key distinguisher between him and the rest of the Galilean crowd. I think that that's what the key distinguisher is. He has a faith, albeit not as strong as a centurion, so I wanted to put that in there, but he has a faith that at least is okay. I'm going to go. I'll go, and I'll hope. I'll hope that you really have that authority and that power. Now, I don't think, like I said, I don't think it's like the centurions because in verse 53, John mentions that the official himself believed in all his household, but only after he hears confirmation that his son was healed at the exact moment that Jesus spoke. Now, I can't confirm what I'm about to say, but I am an optimist, a hopeful optimist. So my hope is that the centurion was actually brought to the point where he, or excuse me, the official was actually brought to the point where he had a faith such as the centurion. Okay? Now they're a little bit different, obviously. They're still different. And I want us to get that because the centurion came to Christ with the faith. The official came to Christ with a tiny little mustard grain seed of faith. And it had to grow and it had to be tended and it had to be watered. But I think it's a happy ending. I think it's a graceful ending that he has this growth of faith. So and it, it leads us to our third point that I'd like for us to discern today. And that is that Jesus is truly honored when people come to trust in him as their Lord and Savior. So we find that we, we, want, to, we want to pursue God. We want to be reconnected with God. That's our hope. That's our longing. And if it's true that we can only rightly be reconnected with God when we're, when we're, or we can only rightly honor God when we truly honor Christ, and that Christ is dishonored when we only look for him for his miracles and powers, and that Christ is truly honored when people come to trust him as their Lord and Savior, now what does that bring to us down? What does that bring to us today? I, I'm, I'm simply suggesting that we combine the two. That we honor God rightly when we honor Jesus rightly, and that Jesus is truly honored when people come to trust him as their Lord and Savior. That's really the point, I think, of this whole passage, is that many people don't come to trust him. Many people look at the miracles, and they look at the powers, and they stop right there, and they don't pursue further. But we see the picture of this one Jewish official who seemingly comes to faith through a process here. And like I said, we, we counter that and we look at the Samaritans who came to a great faith in Jesus just before, just by hearing the words of Christ. We looked at the centurion who, who had a faith in Christ. We don't even know how, but he had a faith in Christ and a strong, authority in, uh, a strong faith in the authority of Christ. And so what I want to do now is look at this, this statement that we honor God rightly when we honor Jesus truly and that we truly honor Jesus when people come to trust in him as their Lord and Savior. I want to, to, to examine this statement a little bit and try to put it in a context for today. 
Um, what I'm proposing is that we look at just the ground level. What, what does trusting in Jesus truly or honoring Jesus truly look like at its foundational level? What is, in, in essence, the first step to this? Because there is a lifelong process, if you will, a lifelong commitment to following Jesus truly, but there is, what I see is a first step into to moving towards Jesus. I want to look at the converse of that first and then move to the positive of it. Now, I've mentioned that people are dishonoring to him when they're pursuing just his miracles and powers. And I want us to to put that into a perspective for a moment. So the Galileans, once again, they saw his wonders, they saw his signs, but they never moved to Christ. Just a couple days ago, we celebrated Christmas, right? So you probably got together with friends and family, and I'm assuming that you got some sort of gifts, I received some, some sort of gift from somebody at some point. Now, I'm going to ask a question. What if someone was only concerned with receiving a gift from another person, but not actually being in that person's presence? What would you call that person? What if there was someone who all they cared about at Christmas was not about being with family and friends and loved ones, but say, oh man, I wonder what I can get from them. I wonder what I'm going to get. That was their only concern. What kind of adjectives do you think you would come up with for them? Greedy? Selfish? Self-centered? Just a jerk? (laughs) I think those are pretty appropriate adjectives. Well, I'll be honest with you, these Galileans, it's kind of what they were doing. Not kind of, that is what they were doing. They were looking to to get what Jesus could give them, but not looking for Jesus himself. So if you're a jerk for thinking about that with presents over Christmas, what does that make someone who pursues the Lord of the universe in that way? The second group of people that we looked at They honored Jesus because they did place their faith and their trust in him as their Lord and Savior. Now, I wish I really wish I had time to unpack this more fully. I do. But like I said, I'm I'm trying to look at just the ground level here. And, And I think that what we come to, all right, it's a difference of perspective. You have one group of people, the Galileans, who are only looking at Christ because of the goodies they can pick up along the trail. And then you have this other group of people who are actually coming to Christ and trying to find out who he truly is. The Samaritans were wondering, are you our Savior? The the centurion already had in his mind that this man, Jesus Christ, had the authority already. He didn't need to keep seeing stuff. He knew he had the authority. And then we find out from the official that he had enough faith to come there. And then he had enough faith to go when Jesus just commanded him, go, your son will be healed. And eventually that grew into what I do believe eventually became a saving faith. Trusting him as a savior. I can't confirm that. But like I said, I'm a a hopeful optimist. So we see two different perspectives. One is pursuing Jesus because of what he can give and what he can do. The other is pursuing Jesus because of who he is and wants to find out if he truly is the Lord and Savior of the universe. Obviously, I believe that that way 
is the way that we honor Christ. And then through Christ, we honor God. I'd like to just elaborate on this just a tiny bit more. And then we'll go home. Or we'll sing. And then go home. <clears throat> Trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Following him and having a right perspective. Having faithful obedience. It's not like any other religious system that I had mentioned in the beginning, and I would never want anyone here to go home with that belief. Trusting in Christ or pursuing Christ as he is in and of himself is not about following a set of rules. It's not about offering right sacrifices. It's actually just about falling on our faces and recognizing that we are not worthy enough and not good enough. That was with the heart of the centurion of the Roman soldier, right? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's really different. He didn't come to Jesus and say, what can I do to earn your healing? The Samaritans, when, when Jesus said, I'm the Savior of the world, they didn't say, well, what can we do to make you our personal Savior? They recognized that they just weren't worthy enough. And in a sense, they fell down on their face, recognized their hopelessness, and cried out. That's what it means to truly call upon Jesus. That's what it means to, to honor him rightly, in a right perspective, when you see him for who he is, or you long for him to be who he is, that means recognizing our hopelessness without him, our nothingness without him, and just longing for him to come and perform a heart surgery on us. I mean that. <laughs> the Gospels describe it. In fact, the entire Bible describes it as what I would call an exchange heart surgery. You see, because you can't rightly follow Christ, you can't rightly see him for who he is. If the heart isn't changed, then we're going to keep seeing him like the Capernaum people, I mean, the uh, Galilean people, excuse me. And I just keep seeing him for the miracle worker and, and wondering, what is he going to give me today? And, and, and what can he bless me with? What, what kind of wealth can he give me? Or a car or a house or a spouse or anything else can he give me? But a heart that is transformed and changed will say that he is the Lord of the universe and he came into this world so that he could bring me to God, that he could bring me eternal life. And I, I want it. And I have no idea how to get that. So God ripped my self-centered heart out of me and in place a perfect heart that is holy and loving towards Christ. That's the power of the gospel. If we will humble ourselves, if we will hope for Christ and who he is, not trying to figure out what are the, the, the miracles we can observe, not trying to figure out what are the processes we can go to, it's really a simple process of recognizing that we're dead and we need a heart that beats. 
And that's impossible. <laughs> that's impossible for us. It really is. Can you do exchange heart surgery on yourself? Can I do it on myself? No, I, I can't. I really can't. But, uh, but I'll leave you with that, that image that Jesus gives. In John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says to him that uh, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked him, how can one be born again? Jesus said, the spirit moves where he wills. So it's through the spirit of God, through the power of God, that our hearts can be transformed, that we can see Christ rightly for the Lord and who he is, not worrying about the miracles and the powers and what goodies he can give us. So I'm going to leave you with this today. If you want to see Christ rightly, you want to see him truly, you want to honor him rightly and truly so that one day, today in fact, and then for eternity, we can honor God truly. Beg the Spirit for a new heart. Don't beg him to send a miracle or a sign. People have been doing that for I don't know how long. Show me this, show me that, give me a vision of this. Just write your name in the sky, God. No, this, these are the signs that, that everyone will come to reject over and over again. Beg for a new heart. Beg for the Spirit to come and take out the heart that doesn't see Christ and implant a heart that will see Christ for who he is. And then we will truly see him, we will truly know him, we will truly honor him. And for eternity, we can honor God. I don't even know what that looks like, but I can't wait. And I hope you can't either. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can open your word and examine your truths. God, that we have an opportunity to actually come back to an honoring relationship with you. And it's all because of your gracious and loving plan in sending your heavenly son, Jesus Christ, to do this for us. Lord God, I pray that every single one of us in here will just place ourselves in your hands and let you do the work. Open our hearts. Take out our hearts of stone. Put in hearts of flesh. Put in hearts that love Christ so that we can know him, honor him, delight in him, and we can receive the promise of eternal life now and the reality of it when we pass beyond the threshold of death. All in the power of your spirit and your holy son, we pray.